0: Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. There's a certain romance surrounding dorm room startups, I guess. From Microsoft to Dell to Facebook, there's something about the audacity of building a company before you even get your degree that sort of catches the imagination. We've already explored a couple of .com dorm room startups on this podcast, the Globe especially springs to mind, but the title for the first .com dorm room startup probably goes to Tripod, which was founded all the way back in 1992 by Bo Peabody and several of his classmates. In this episode, Bo recounts how Tripod stumbled upon one of the earliest antecedents for what today we would call social media and gives us an amazing analysis about what it really takes to succeed as an entrepreneur. I know you're going to enjoy this conversation with Bo Peabody. Bo Peabody, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. Thank you. Um, we usually kind of start out with um, you, you know your sort of tech background and things like that, but I see that that you actually went to college for a, a poli-sci degree. So I'm curious, um, did, did you have any interest in computers, uh, awareness of the web and the internet uh, around the time you were in college?
1: Well, the internet was certainly around when I was in college. Um, The web, as we know it as a graphical medium, wasn't really developed until 1993-94, which was my junior-senior year. Um, But I was lucky. if My mom worked at a software company when I was growing up, so we had a computer in our house really from, from as early as I can, certainly middle school, from middle school, we we had a computer and, you know, it was a rudimentary sort of DOS, you know, IBM thing. Um, but, you know, we played games on it and, and did word processing on it. And so I had an awareness of computers and, and really the, the thing that I, I think was the, was the main observation that I made when I got to Williams in 1991, was that I walked into my dorm and I noticed that in every single person's room there was a computer or a computer that maybe they were sharing with a a roommate. But for 30 kids or for 40 kids in one, so the dorm section, there was one TV. And it, it just, it, it was clear that the, the way that people were communicating and entertaining themselves and doing, you know, spending their, their screen time, as it were, was on a computer and not on a television. And that's a very, I think that was a generational shift.
0: A- actual personal computing, <laughs> classic definition. Yeah, right? like that was, that
1: was how people, you know, that's where they went first been set up to a television and and that that definitely struck me um, but then it occurred to me that all the things that were on that computer were were sort of more work related but for games and that it felt to me like there there had to be a a better way to sort of get people engaged in in that device beyond you know word processing or simple you know computer games
0: so you can um you can correct me if i'm wrong but i believe if, if it's 1991 your your freshman year i believe this is when the idea of what would become tripod came to you so can tell, tell me a little bit about this how this idea evolved
1: yeah so so it was it was really came from the fact that um we felt that we could I I don't know. I mean, the the very, very first initial kernel of the idea was that there were all these things that students needed um, to plan for their futures, which we we at Williams and at any four year college, you're being you're being constantly sort of either encouraged or pressured to do um, that could be delivered more efficiently on a computer. That, that was sort of the initial notion. Um, it wasn't even really when we came up with the idea, the idea of delivering it in a networked environment was almost secondary because the only network environments that were graphical at that point were AOL, CompuServe, and Prodigy.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So
1: those were closed systems. So. We 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 had this notion that we might go do a deal with them, but but no college kids were on those things because they were too expensive. So it was just a notion of can we deliver information to students on a computer, um, and that was the that was the original idea.
0: And the idea is specifically to target co- college students as as your audience.
1: Yeah, and that was sort of you know it was like the first generation of people who were who were using computers sort of as their primary means of, of, you know, entertainment and work. And so that was, that, that was the idea. And then the, the real, I mean, that would have been an uninteresting business. And so the aha moment came in and we incorporated in 1992 with that idea that we were going to build this, you know, better version of AOL, this like cooler, hipper version of AOL. And in fact, our first business plan called for a $10 million capital raise, which by the way, back in 1992, right, right. you know, they're just, that just wasn't happening unless you were running an equipment company. Um, so the notion that we were going to go raise $10 million, but, we, but that was the idea. We were going to raise $10 million and put modem racks, in all these different cities, and build this X twenty five network, and compete with AOL, CompuServe, and Prodigy. That was our original business plan. And the the, the the probably like the first moment of of hyper capital efficiency, that which is an age that we're now twenty years into, um, with with network software and, and networked entertainment, was that when when the browser was developed, and all of a sudden you could you could put onto the internet something that you could make look like it was AOL, that in that very moment, our business plan went from $10 million to $300,000 because all of a sudden we didn't have to provide the proprietary network and software that would allow someone to experience a graphical interface in a network
0: environment. You, uh, I'm sorry to interrupt. You keep saying we. Who who are you developing uh, this idea with?
1: So originally I developed it with um, a friend of mine, a fellow student named Brett Hershey and we then spent probably three or four months talking about the idea and then we brought it to a mutual professor of ours, a guy named Dick Sabat. And,
0: and the s- three of
1: us started tripod that was the that's one of the reasons why we called it tripod it was just three three people and um we were con- you know very convinced that you know the sort of the notion of, of three people or uh, three legs of a stool are stronger than two and it was that that was how we came up with the name which wasn't a very good name but we had no idea what we were doing so we just called it tripod
0: actually i was going to say i mean dick dick Sabbath, I believe was an economics professor but no none of you really have any entrepreneurial experience at this point.
1: No, I mean I was I had been an entrepreneur growing up. I had, you know, lawn mowing businesses and and uh snow blow driveway snow blowing businesses. I lived in New Hampshire. I I had a, you know, a driveway seal coating business. I had. So I I was, you know, a, a kid entrepreneur. But no, none of us had any real experience in starting a business.
0: Where do you um, where do you raise money from right at the very beginning? Is it just friends and family and, and savings and things like that? Yeah, I don't that, that
1: has not changed a lot. You know, we we originally I mean the, the, we originally approached Peter Wilmot, who was a was on the trustee the board of trustees of Williams and had been the chief financial officer at Federal Express. And the reason that we approached him is because the idea for Federal Express came out of a paper that was written at Yale by a student, and so we thought that Pete would have a disposition, you know, a predisposition to to, to take us seriously because he had obviously made a lot of money um, following an idea from that had been germinated in in, in, a, in an educational environment. So, and sure enough, he he did take us seriously and. He gave us our first, uh, I don't know, ten, 10 or $15,000, um, which we used. I maybe I he gave us $25,000, which we used to do this big market research project mm-hmm. to really understand whether there was enough interest in the student community you know, to warrant this type of service. And then we raised another, I don't know, $100,000, maybe. It's probably less, probably $75,000 on top of that to build... A, believe it or not, we built a CD-ROM sort of ver- version of what we wanted. Like we, we imagined it in a networked environment, but it was so hard. We couldn't show it to anybody in any way. So Sort of as a prototype. On, we built a prototype that yeah. you could click through, almost like what the prototyping things that people use today for mobile apps like Envision. It was basically just allowed you to click through a series of screens and see what it would feel like
0: so you also don't have any experience I'm assuming with, with programming. So how do you, how do, how do you start to put this product together?
1: So the interesting thing about, about the web um, and, and the internet
0: sort of pre the web
1: was that you you didn't really benefit from knowing the existing computer code languages. Like you, you didn't, it was it was such a it was such a completely different environment that it was really more about understanding almost from a philosophical standpoint like how people would interact with each other in a networked environment where everybody in the world could sort of talk to each other and share things with each other so and the reason that i was interested in media was that i was doing media studies as part of my curriculum at Williams and so the the reason that I knew about the internet is because many of my classes required us to use the internet and to read about the internet as a social-cultural phenomenon and I think that that, that was actually that the people who were doing some of the more interesting thinking back then about it were approaching it from that perspective in fact the person that we hired to be our first chief technical officer, um, chief technology officer, had a rule that he would not hire any programmers who had computer science degrees Mm. because he felt that they had too much baggage to think about the problems that we were trying to solve, which actually HTML, which was all we had for the first really three or four years was a incredibly simple, um, uh, you know, code, but but thinking about how to deploy it in ways that would be useful to humans was the harder problem. I, so I, anybody I, can I mean, learn HTML. Anybody can learn it today. Right. I mean, it is, not, it is, it is the simplest of, of languages. Now, of course, you're dealing with that front end being, you know, such... That is the... That, that, that is, you know, only the only thing that that does is, is display the information back then displaying the information was all there was I, I, there wasn't
0: yeah I, because conversely I always love to ask this question even though I know what the answer is going to be but you know there's no such thing as CMSs or anything like that back then you guys are you, you're all you're, everything you're doing you're hard coding into pages and, and you're writing you're putting the servers together yourself and, and the databases together yourself right?
1: Exactly. Every single thing we built from scratch. We built our chat system from scratch. We built our, our our messaging and 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 commenting system from scratch. We built, and that was really where Tripod took off. Was that you know one day uh, Ethan Zuckerman, the the chief technology officer, came to me and said, "Hey, um, Nate Kurz and Jeff Vanderclute." Uh, you know, last night uh, built this thing that allows you to put uh, text and pictures and sound onto you know into a form, and you push a button, and it automatically becomes a web page. And Actually, that
0: was, you know, what can you can genesis? You, can you put a pin in that because I want to? Does well, first of all, let me ask you this: Does when when Tripod launches in ninety five? Um, on the web, does it already have the the homepage builder as a part of it? No. Okay, all right. So then, yes, put a pin in that because we'll come back to it chronologically. So when you launch in 95, to the benefit of those of us that now uh, can't find something like this on a Wayback Machine because it doesn't go back that far, but um, if I came to Tripod, um, what would I see? Describe the the product, the service offerings, that sort of thing.
1: You would have seen a collection of... of for the time, beautifully designed web pages with a bunch of text and pictures and minimal ability to input uh, a question or a comment or have a chat with, you know, two other people that might be, you know, it it was, the interactivity was so minimal. So you were really just being able to call up these pages of information that we had hard-coded and designed and do it in a real-time environment.
0: And again, it's it's targeting students about things like, I guess, job advice, personal finance, health, that sort of thing?
1: Yep. Yep. It was all basically, you know, a what we, we thought of it as like a hipper version of AOL. So we had travel and careers and, uh, you know, lifestyle. It was, a, it was a magazine. It was a magazine. That was delivered via the web.
0: What was what was the uptake? Um, uh, when it you... was it was it was horrible. <laughs> okay, you
1: know, I mean, the the reason it was the reason it was. I mean, I think about it now. I mean, back then, you know, it was good because I always joke, and it's not really a joke, that when we launched Tripod, you could literally surf the whole web,
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: like you could go to every web page that existed I mean not every web page but certainly every front door that existed I mean there there were there were thousands not not billions of web pages so you know we we got people to come visit us because we were the only you know one of the only games in town
0: well we also, did have, there's no promotional infrastructure except for maybe getting noticed by Yahoo and, and becoming a cool site on Yahoo at this point right
1: that was that was pretty much the only way in fact there's a funny story um, that we, we decided, uh, because we had raised a little capital, we decided to buy some ads on Yahoo. And so we, we went to Yahoo and we said, look, we, we've got you know $5,000 and we want to buy an ad on homepage of Yahoo. And so they said, okay, show us your ad. And we said, well, here are our ads. They said, these are the most beautiful ads we've seen. Um, we're, we're going to run it for this price. And it was like, back then it was just, it was a time. Like you would pay for a month. Um, there was no sense of, of traffic or CPM or anything. And so they ran it for a month and then they said, you know, and 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 we got a lot of traffic. We said, would you do it for another month? And they said, yes. And so we paid them another $5,000 and then that was up and they said, do you want to keep going? And we said, you know, we don't, it's working, but we don't really have a revenue model. So. You know, we're not going to spend any more money. And they said, "You know what? We love your ad so much, we're just going to keep it up."
0: (laughs) That's nice, yeah.
1: (laughs) Because we think it's the most beautiful ad we have. And then, if you look in the Yahoo S one filing for their IPO, Tripod is listed as one of their top twenty global advertisers, and we only ever spend ten thousand dollars with them. (laughs)
0: That's a that's a good story. Okay, so let let's do then come back to um this uh tool that's developed uh to to create home pages, personal home pages on tripod. So uh, how long into uh a- after launching does does this um get developed? I
1: wanna say I, I really I should know the exact answer to that, but I wanna say it was less than six months. Mm-hmm. Less than six months. Because I think we were all, you know, the, 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 the developers were, you know, were, were sort of banging there. like, we had, we did have a little funny church and state thing where we had an editorial team and we had a development team. And the editorial team viewed it, I think rightfully so, as an editorial product. And the development team viewed it as a technology product and they wanted to constantly be integrating interactivity and i think their instincts ended up being right which was this is an interactive medium that's what separates it from every other medium we should have interactivity so they started building things like the you know the the, the we had a, a, a like a trip a trip advisor where you'd you know put in uh, I used I use that term. I actually, I actually think we called it that. Where mm-hmm. it was like you'd put in the dates that you were going to travel, and it would remind you to do this. And then we had a little um, re- thing called the Reminder Minder in the Lifestyle section, where you'd put in you know all the dates of the things that were that were your birthdays, your mom's birthday, your parents' anniversary. Your, you know, and it would remind you on that day via email that you had. Yeah, you know, it was like the, the stuff that is like hard coded into iOS. Uh, now we were like having these little interactive tools that we put onto the site. And that was the development team saying, this is what makes the medium different. The fact that we can get people to input their information and we can respond to it through a database. That's what's interesting. And so there was this constant, healthy, creative tension between those two groups that I was in the middle of and trying to manage. And the, the thing that, that really took the business to the it made the business successful is when they built that homepage builder, it was the first thing that we put up that got traction
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: and all those other little things, the reminder reminder and the, the travel advisor and all these things like they were cool, but nobody ever like they didn't really gain traction. But when we put, I'll never forget when we put that homepage builder up, it went up, the guys put it up in the middle of the night. They didn't even ask. They just put it up. I came. I came in in the morning and Ethan Zeckerman came and told me, like, they put this thing up. And I said, fine, that, well, you know, no problem, great. And then I think by, by noon, our servers were burning. It was, it was unbelievable. I'll never forget watching the ticker, because they had set up a ticker to see how many members we were getting. And it was like we were getting one every, every 10 seconds, then one every 8 seconds, then one every 6 seconds. And it was like down to one a second. And it was like, this is all
0: in the first week. <laughs> well, you 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 stumble upon, you know, it's common we think of now that you can build an entire business like Facebook off of user-generated content. But at the time, people were still very much trying to do things like Pathfinder and other things that were, you know, sort of, we're, just, we're delivering media, but in a new way. And this is the first time where it's like, all right, just let our community create the media and, and we're just the platform for it.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yes, exactly, and and the truth is, you you couldn't create a business uh, doing that, and we we never did create a business. And, you know, we we, we ran Tripod uh, until until two thousand. I mean, two of those years we ran it inside of Lycos. but it was never a business. I mean, social media as a business, it was never a it was never a business until Facebook. I mean, it was it was. You know, GeoCities never made a profit. Mm-hmm, we never mm-hmm. made a profit. No, but none of those early Tumblr still doesn't make a profit. I mean, none of the early social media businesses made any money. They barely made any revenue.
0: Well, did you, you had to have experimented with, with various revenue models. Did, did, you, did you try advertising at all or, or, subscription? oh, sure, sure.
1: Mm-hmm. We, I mean, we you know, we sold some advertising, uh, you know, it's funny. We we at one point we allowed members to pay to not have ads on their page, um, and I think we generated like we were generating like ten thousand dollars a month from people who were paying us to not put ads on their page. I think it, I think when we sold the business, we had fifty thousand dollars a month of revenue, and we were burning three hundred and fifty thousand dollars a month of cash.
0: And the um, how would you describe what what the kind of home pages that users were developing um, again, you know, just for the benefit of people that, that weren't there at the time, like, is, is it like, you know, the social media that like, is it just like, this is a Jim's homepage or this is Jim's Cincinnati reds page or like what were, what were users doing with it?
1: What I find amazing about, about Facebook in particular is that the pages are, are not, they're, they're ugly. Right I mean your Facebook page is not a, it's not a pretty page. if you want you want to build a pretty page, you use you know some other system. you know you use a a, a real something like wordpress or or squarespace or or um, you know, some something that's meant to build something beautiful that that we thought that was social media, that you would build something that other people would come and look at it and they would interact with you about the thing that you had built. That was, that was sort of where we were with social media back in, the, you know, really up until 2005. Right. And then, then when, when, ICQ, I mean, the messaging, instant messaging platforms were really the first, the first thing where people were like, okay, just communicating with each other is, the medium. That's the social media. It's, it's, it's the things you say. It's not something that you beautify and editorialize. It's just like what's happening in your life and what picture you took and what funny joke, you know? And, 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 and so, and so that it's not, that's why Facebook doesn't need to be pretty because it's not about being pretty. It's about just being able to communicate your life quickly to a lot of other people who are interested in it.
0: And so you're saying that even all the way back then, people were doing similar things with tripod pages? They were doing what you see
1: now on, a, on Tumblr or on WordPress, OK, what people were doing on tripod, just much less beautiful versions of it. Although every so often we would have someone who would do something gorgeous um, because they knew what they were doing. But it was it was really rudimentary, you know, graphic design and illustrations. And um, and it was very much an 80-20 rule where we had, you know, it's probably more of a 90-10 rule. 10% of the pages generated 90% of the
0: traffic. So you've stressed that... Um... Uh, you weren't really generating any revenue from this, but uh, at the same time, you know, by 1997, I think you you passed uh, a million registered users, which doesn't sound like much, but if there's only 25 million people on the web at this point, that's pretty pretty amazing. <laughs> and you're like, you know, the the eighth most traffic site on the web. So, you guys really do gain traction just by by stumbling upon this phenomenon.
1: Yeah, and I think also I think the stumbling upon it was was lucky the harnessing it um, and riding it and treating the community with care and cultivating the community and curating the community was the thing that we did that I'm proud of. Um, and, you know, building the homepage builder was a bit of a stroke of luck. And I, I give, you know, Jeff and Nate a lot of credit for, for really doing that and, and Ethan for giving them, um, the space, the creative space to do that. I don't take any credit for it. Everything that happened after that, we all take credit for because we did a very good job, I think. And in fact, you know, we actually we lost a tremendous amount of money by making one really big philosophical community decision that our competitors did not make. Um, or, or they made the opposite, which is that we, we did not allow ourselves to be colonized by pornographers.
0: Mm. And that was,
1: that was a, a decision that, that I am still very proud of um, and will for ever be, forever be proud. Uh, it cost us hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, and Geocities took a different approach, which is that they just let, you know, just the same thing Tumblr did, um, which is just let pornographers, you know, colonize the, the the community, and they had ten times as much traffic as we did.
0: So, in uh, I believe December of of 1997, though, given this, you know, traffic success, um, uh, Lycos comes calling. Can you tell me the story about uh, getting acquired by Lycos and and why why you decided to do that?
1: Well, the first person who came calling was was um, was AOL. Uh, mm-hmm. and we originally had signed an agreement, uh, to sell the company to AOL. So we, we originally got some interest from AOL. We then hired uh, a banker, a guy named Chris Pasco, who was at Morgan Stanley at the time is now Blackstone, remains a close friend. Um, and Chris went out and did what good investment bankers do and he, Told our story to everyone who we thought would be interested, and at the end of the at the end of the process, we had five offers, and we decided to take AOL. They were all similarly priced. The offers we had offers from AOL, Yahoo, Lycos, Excite, and Microsoft, and they were all similarly priced. Uh, Lycos and AOL were the highest prices uh, within a pretty tight band, and we decided to go with AOL because they had given us assurance that we could keep the company where it was located, which was in Williamstown, Massachusetts, which was an odd place to have a company, but it was it was grown there for obvious reasons. Um, and uh, about 30 days into the diligence process, um, after we had signed uh, an agreement to sell the company to them, they basically told us that that wasn't what they wanted and that they wanted us to move the business um, down to, down to Virginia. And, you know, we said, that's not what we signed up for. And we knew we had four other offers that we thought we could rekindle. And so we went in a laugh, literally it all happened sort of over this Christmas break of that 1997. Um, we went back to Lycos and said, Hey, if you guys are still interested, cause Lycos also was willing to, to allow us to stay in Williamstown and it was easier for them because they were only two hours away. Um, they said absolutely, and we literally negotiated um the agreement over uh over about a about about a twenty seven hours straight um leading up to uh the day before New year's Eve, December thirtieth which is when we signed the agreement
0: so that's december ninety seven and I you know I think the deal was in like the the fifty to sixty million dollar range. But just you know, you know, twelve to eighteen months later, places like um, GeoCities get get taken out for billions. So was was it just a little too soon? Uh, Poor timing and and being earlier and anything with with that deal? I think so. I mean, you know, what I
1: always say is um, there were three there were three companies that 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 really mattered in the space. Um, There was there was GeoCities, uh, there was Tripod, and there was the Globe. And I think we took the middle road uh, and we took the safe road. Um, And I think if we had not sold, we would have either been GeoCities or the Globe. And GeoCities obviously was an extraordinary outcome financially, better, much Mm -hmm. better than ours. Mm -hmm. And the Globe was a zero.
0: Right. Initially Uh, successful, but eventually a zero. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And so, you know, I think, yeah, we could have, we, we sort of took, we took a, we took a safe pass. Um, and a lot of that, a lot of that had to do with, with, you know, my age and experience and, and, and also with, with Dick had a, was, had a, he always, always instituted in me the, the sacred trust is what he would call it when you take capital from other people. And he said, we have an opportunity to give you know everybody a fantastic return, um, and we can continue to hold our like our stock if we want. So everybody has the option to continue to ride this wave, but we have the ability to offer people the chance to take you know three, four, five times their money out now, and it is our fiduciary responsibility to take that. And that was something that it's very old-fashioned, and I think um, not not old-fashioned in its in its intention. But certainly in the world of venture capital now, you know, people would say they want you to shoot for the moon and they don't want you to take the safe road and they don't care about getting five extra money. They want 100 extra money. And and I'm in that world. So I know. But it was it was a sign of who we were and a sign of the times. And and we felt that that was the right thing for us and and for our employees and for our investors. And, And that's what we did.
0: If you'll indulge me, uh, because the only other Lycos person we've spoken to is Bob Davis so far. Um, I, I believe you spent about two years at Lycos. Could you just tell me whatever you want to tell me about Lycos as a company, maybe the culture, how how you guys were treated within Lycos? Anything you want to say about Lycos?
1: So I always say that uh, you know at Tripod I learned how to turn um, a five-page paper that I had originally written you know, about Tripod into a product. Um, and at Lycos, I learned how to turn a product into a company. And I really learned more about what it really means to be have a sales and marketing orientation at Lycos than, than I ever learned at Tripod. Um, uh, and And really probably the steepest learning curve on that front that I've ever had, even to this day, um, was working with Bob and Ted Phillip and, and Dave Peterson in particular uh, and the board uh, there watching, um, growing that company with them. Um, it was like we were treated extraordinarily well. Um, you know, we were the first acquisition. We were a bit of the crown jewel. You know, I think Bob has been incredibly gracious and in giving us, you know, maybe more credit even than we deserve for for helping them develop the network strategy and, and, and getting to at one point be the biggest web property in the world. Uh, I think Lycos as a culture was you either you either really liked it or you didn't because it was a very sales oriented culture. Um, Bob was one of the most successful salespeople at, at Wang. Dave Peterson was a remarkable sales executive. And if and if selling ads and, and you know doing deals wasn't your thing, uh, then you weren't going to, you weren't going to do well at Lycos. Um, but if it was your thing, it was a, it was an incredible place to learn and an incredible place to be at that time.
0: I believe you, uh, you had a a two year lockup period where you couldn't sell your Lycos shares and that, and so that ends, uh, around Christmas of, of 1999. And and I believe you sell immediately as soon as the lockup period comes. Yeah, we had a, we had a lockup that
1: that sort of was a gradual unlock so i i sold pretty much all the way from the beginning until mm. the
0: end um but you're you're selling but, at the absolute highs
1: yeah i got it was yeah it was very lucky i mean i i sold all of my shares before before the crash
0: we'll, we'll come back to luck uh, uh towards the end here um but i wanted i want to ask you about I, i've read that You know, you've described that, you know, one of your roles was sort of to sell yourself to the media to promote Tripod, yourself as a a newfangled kind of CEO entrepreneur. Um, you, You wrote that you created this image of the slacker CEO, an athletic, shaggy haired, perpetually mellow 24 year old making millions while barely lifting a finger. I you know I've asked this of the of the um the globe guys how how they sort of became poster kids for you know the dot com bubble but even I've asked the original you know Netscape engineering team about how the media took this image of of how a startup works and how they were college kids that worked through the night and slept under their desks and kind of ran with it and that's what we think of today so tell me tell me what you think now you know almost well actually yes 20 years on um about about that image of the startup that that you were a part of bringing into into our culture.
1: Yeah, I think it's, you know, I I guess there's a um there's there's a uh, there's a thing that I l- really feel proud of um, and there's a thing that I think is unfortunate about the way that the media has always portrayed um startups. And the thing, the thing that I'm proud of is that we all, I think, for the first time made the word entrepreneur and the lifestyle of being an entrepreneur and the career choice of being an entrepreneur something that is very mainstream. Um, and that the connotation of that word is not, you know, someone who can't get a job, you know, at P&G or Goldman Sachs, it's someone who is you know, confident and bold and risk-taking and innovative. And I think that's a very good thing for our culture. And I think that the first wave of internet entrepreneurs, which I feel lucky to have been a part of, you know, wasn't the only thing that, that sort of popularized that notion and, and changed that perception, but I think it was the most important um, group of people that, that did that. Um, the, the downside is that I, I think it all just seems so easy, you know, the media makes it seem easy. And I played into that because that's what they wanted to believe that I sort of did all these things, you know, without really breaking a sweat and, you know, this, this culture of immediate success and, um, it all happened so quickly and now you go from nothing to, to having, you know, having a, a beautiful home and, and millions of dollars and, and that's not true, and I, and I believe that there are many people who go down the path of being an entrepreneur because of that image that's created when they really don't know what they're getting themselves into, and they really haven't done the hard work to figure out if it's the type of lifestyle and the type of career choice that's right for them. Um, they've been sort of lured into it, you know, in the way that Hollywood has been doing that forever, right? I mean making this this incredibly um glamorous image of you know of of people who who act for a living when the truth is like it's very difficult and a lot of people go into that profession because it seems glamorous and it seems easy and like a great lifestyle but it's incredibly difficult and incredibly time consuming and you give up you end up giving up huge portions of the rest of your life in order to be to be good at it
0: in a in a similar vein you wrote a book um with the title being Lucky or Smart, uh, The Secrets to an Entrepreneurial Life. Um, and I think that this is something that does not get as much uh, emphasis as it should. So say something about the role that luck actually really plays in, in really any entrepreneurial endeavor.
1: So the it, it plays a huge role. Um, and some people call it timing, you know, and some people call it, you know, being in the right place, and some people call it knowing the right people, and there's a lot of versions of it. But it is there is a serendipity that needs to happen um, in a startup in order for it to be successful. And the thing that I think that I tried to explain in that book that I think people miss is that it isn't. It isn't in order to make. Lucky things happen, you have to make a lot of things happen, because if you do a thousand things, then you have a chance that one of them is going to be the thing that is in the right place at the right time, you know or or ends up getting you in front of the right person, or whatever version of luck it ends up be manifesting itself. If you do a hundred things, you have a much worse chance of one of those things happening. So the hard work is in doing all of these things, you know, 999 of them, which are going to be total waste of time. Um, and one of them is going to be the thing that allows you to propel the business um, to the next level. I think that that's sort of where the luck, and then I think there are little versions of that that happen along the way, but there's that there's that initial thing that really allows you to get the traction. And then I think it's it's, it's the posture that you take on the business after that, where you either realize that part of it was, was luck and that, you know, now you're, 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 you're a steward of that luck and you've got to manage it and, and, and cultivate it and curate it, or you, you convince yourself that, you know, it wasn't luck and that it was just your brilliance. And that brings a lot of ego to the table where I think you start to make bad decisions as you ride the wave that you, that, that, that you're on from that, that original,
0: spark. So I believe uh, you've spent the last 15 years or so uh, in and out of of venture capital. Um, But I also, and you you, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you recently returned to entrepreneuring. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I I did about a year ago.
0: And first of all, uh, why? But then uh, tell us about uh, Renzel.
1: Well, the why is uh, I originally went into venture capital because I was just, I was so tired. Um, you know, after the, after the crash, I had started four companies, um, between 1998 and, and 2000, uh, in 2004. Um, and you know, uh, the, the, the crash instead of Oh sort of two, Oh three, was just a brutal, brutal time. And I was, you know, I had, I was managing, four different businesses, each of which had its own CEO, but I was chairman and I was managing all the investors. And I had, you know, a CEO who, who, who had a nervous breakdown and another one who couldn't take it and left. And another, I mean, I, it was like, it was really, really complicated time. And I just, after that, I just decided that, you know, I needed a break. And, you know, the truth is venture capital is, is a hard job, but it isn't as hard as being an entrepreneur. Um, and You know, and really, it's because you don't have a lot of people reporting to you. And that's what makes running a company difficult is the personal, um, the personal uh, personality aspects and the managing of people. Um, And venture capital, you don't have some of that, but not not nearly as much. And so for me, venture capital was a place where I could recharge my batteries, um, you know, take some of what I knew about starting companies, you know, both the good and the bad. Um, and, and, and do a little coaching rather than playing was how I, how I thought about it. And then after village ventures ended, um, uh, after about 10 years, um, you know, I, I was at a crossroads and I, I, you know, Graycroft, um, was extraordinary in sort of giving me a place to, to work out what I wanted to do next. And I, I sort of was there for, you know, for six to 12 months while I decided, whether I wanted to join them, you know, as a full-time partner, um, or continue as a venture partner and, and, and go down, go down, go on back on the other side of the table. And it took me actually, I decided quickly, mostly because I had to, that I, that I wasn't going to become a full partner, but then it took me another two years, um, to really get to the point where I was ready uh, to start a new company. And so that, and that new company is Renzel. And, Part of part of this is in the book, but I I've, for the last twenty years I've been the co-owner of a restaurant group, um, right? And so I yeah, so, so I I've, I've been these two little parallel lives where I've done this sort of hardcore technology, you know, me venture capital life, and then I've been an owner um, of restaurants, which is a very analog business, <laughs> um, and I've always wanted to figure out a way to marry them, and um, it, it, Renzel is is bringing sort of a a modern data science and and sort of technology approach to producing um, restaurant ratings uh, and also to using the data that, that, uh, giving the data that we use to create those ratings back to the restaurants in order to give them the ability to improve their guest experience. So it's a data and media company that covers, at first, the high-end, part of the restaurant um, uh, market uh, by creating this panel of people who collect data in these restaurants in an anonymous fashion, and then we built, you know, some, some data science that allows us to look at that data in a way that is far more sophisticated and far more objective, you know, than any of the other rating services have ever looked at data.
0: Uh, well, Bo Peabody, thank you so much for uh, remembering all that for us, uh, remembering basically the birth of, uh, of user-generated content uh, you know, on, on the Internet and things like that. But um, uh, thanks for telling us your whole story.
1: Well, I appreciate it. I, I, I'm more tired after telling that story <laughs> than I thought I would be.
0: <laughs> I did it, but
1: I can It was amazing, amazing time.
0: If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, please subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice. There's plenty more great internet history where that came from. And if you're a longtime listener, then you know what to do to help us out. Rate and review us on iTunes, because iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more great reviews we get, the more people will discover us. As always, there's more info on our website, www.internethistorypodcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at NethistoryPod. And my personal Twitter is at Brian MCC. Thanks for listening.